Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Our Father, we thank you that you are sovereign in the affairs of men and nations. And you know what is happening in our nation, and we all want to know who will be president for the next four years. You've allowed us to live in a republic and to be blessed with this kind of government. And if indeed it's the president, so-called elect, then may you make that real. But if this is a dishonest and less than fair election, then we pray the deeds of darkness would be uncovered. We thank you that you are not shaken, that you are on your throne in heaven, that the plan of the ages is perfectly unfolding under your sovereign and omnipotent schedule. May we find our joy and our rest not in the circumstances of the day, but in a living, pulsating, life-changing relationship with yourself. Lord Jesus, thank you that when you saved us, just as you promised, you would keep the promise of the new deal, the new covenant, and you sent the Spirit of God to live within our bosoms. Thank you that he bears witness with our spirit that we've become children of God. Thank you that when we are in Christ Jesus, we are new creations, that the old life has passed away, and everything has become new. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for the Bible that you gave us. You call it milk, meat, honey, bread, and you told us to long for it, like a babe longs for milk, to long for the pure, unadulterated Word of God that we might grow in respect to our salvation. So as we open our Bibles, we open our hearts to you. And pray that you would speak to us, that the word would be more than information, but it would be life-changing, and that we would put it into shoe leather. Father, without you, I can do nothing, but with you, all things are possible. And so I ask for your anointing today, and I pray the Spirit of God would draw to himself those who are lost, wherever they may be, whether in this building or in some other place in the world, that the word which is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword the word that you call eternal seed that brings about a birth from above, may it have its effect in the lives of people today. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Esther. If you're not familiar with this neglected book, you can find the Psalms. It's about dead center in your Bible. And then scan two books to the left. Right before the Psalms, you'll find the book of Job. And right before Job, you will come to the book of Esther. Ladies and gentlemen, we are living in a generation that is witnessing a moral slide, and more so in the last 20 years and in all of American history. America is not just simply rotting from within, the world is. Wherever you go, there's more and more decadence. We are living in a day of declining spirituality and a day of decaying morality. The American Conservative, it's a print magazine and daily site for political analysis based in Washington, D.C. I like it because they don't exaggerate. They're careful. They're accurate. More than any other organization I've found two weeks ago, they said this, three out of 10 women under the age of 25 consider themselves to be gay or transgender. We now have 30% of Generation Z 
who are claiming to be sexually uninterested in men, another sign of a deeply decadent society, according to Romans chapter 1. The most important thing a generation can do is reproduce the next generation. No families means no children and no future. Just in June, the state of Massachusetts, the officials there declared that churches are subject to the public accommodation laws. This means that if churches host public activities, something like a spaghetti dinner or a fall festival or a vacation Bible school, women's private changing areas and restrooms must be available to men who identify as women or you will face crippling fines or even jail time. This forced Pastor Carrasco there in Massachusetts to shut down his church's women's shelter because they would be forced to allow men who identify as female to use the same restrooms and living facilities as these vulnerable women. A major plank in the Democratic platform, most so-called evangelicals for Biden never obviously read it, or if they did, they're grossly ignorant of Scripture or maybe even unconverted. A major plank is the Equality Act. And if passed, it would make these kinds of regulations standard in America. And our new president-elect, if he is indeed, says that he will make this his business by presidential decree in the first hundred days. If we lose the Senate, it will become law, or it will be done initially by executive order. And if the Equality Act is passed, and by the way, it was voted on on May the 17th, 2019, the vote in the House was 236 to 173, 100% of all the Democratic people voted in favor of it, and nine Republicans, but they did not have the support of the Senate. But if passed, it will remove the tax-exempt status of Christian schools Christian colleges, Christian universities, seminaries, adoption agencies, food pantries, Christian radio stations, if they fail to fall in line with the LGBTQIA and abortion agenda. Any church or private school, for that matter, if they hire a person who says that they engage in sodomy and in same-sex behavior and they refuse to hire them on that basis, or more likely, if they hire such an individual, only to find out later that this is their position, and they fire them, be it a church or, for that matter, a Christian business, they will be in violation of this act. I believe we are living in the latter times. The Scripture tells us that in the latter times, God would gather the children of Israel from the four corners of the world, and He would bring them back into the land of Israel. People occasionally say to me, I wish I could have lived in biblical times. I wish I could have seen biblical history, history unfold. You are seeing biblically, biblical history unfold. You are living in the very times the Scripture wrote about. And so God said, Jesus affirmed it that he would gather the Jewish people from across the planet. There's only 12.5 million Jews on the earth. Eight million of them, nearly eight million now, are living in the land of Israel. And the Scripture is clear, 100% will not come. 
But listen, whether Jesus comes next week or 50 years from now, it does not change one bit our responsibility to be salt and light to a decadent society. And so the moral decline in the day in which we live live, forces us to ask some very, very important and penetrating questions. What kind of a man, what kind of a woman, what kind of a church, what kind of a teenager does it take to make an impact on this kind of a generation? How do you impact a moral decadent and morally corrupt society? Well, the answer is found here in the book of Esther. And I want us to learn today that the strength to stand firm, the ability to make an impact, to have moral courage in the midst of a culture that opposes you, comes from spiritual commitment. And we see that in the lives of Mordecai and in the life of Esther. Let me just say it again. Moral courage is always the product of spiritual commitment, of your obedience to do what is right. And if your moral courage is strong, no one and nothing will be able to stop you. And I want to prove that this morning because Queen Esther lived in a day of rank paganism. Now, as you're finding that book in the Old Testament, let me just remind you, there are only two books in all of the Bible that are named after a woman, the book of Ruth and the book of Esther. And in many ways, they are a study in contrast. The book of Ruth tells us the record of a Gentile woman who married a Hebrew man, and God used her to perpetuate the line of the Messiah from which the Lord Jesus came. The book of Esther is the story of a Hebrew woman who married a Gentile man, and God used her to preserve the nation of Israel so that the Messiah could be born. The record of Ruth, as you read it, it begins with a famine, and it ends with a birth. When you read the book of Esther, it begins specifically with a great feast, but it ends with the death of some 75,000 people. God is mentioned 25 times in the book of Ruth. His name never appears once in the book of Esther, but his fingerprints are everywhere. Ruth is a book of faith working through love. Esther is a book of faith working through courage. So being able to stand strong is what we desperately need in this day. And Esther was a person of moral courage. She had the moral courage of her convictions to stand up for what she knew to be true. And let me say, there are a few individuals who will galvanize and encourage you more. Remember, the Old Testament is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying. The Old Testament, we're told, was written for those of us who would live upon whom the ends of the ages would come. And God knew that there would be a people living at the end of time who would desperately need the courage and the, and, and the example that, again, will galvanize you in a way that few other people can do. Now, if you read the book of Esther several times over, you will discover it divides into three major portions. In chapters 1 and 2, we find the selection of Esther. After a long and arduous process to select a new queen out of one of 127 provinces, Esther is selected. Then when you come to chapters 3 through 7, the theme is the detection of Haman. He is the villain of the story. It's a true story. He cooks up a plan, of course, to exterminate the Jewish people. And then, as I've written here on my outline, chapters 8 through 10 deals with the protection of Israel. God is going to preserve this nation. Why? Because all of biblical history flows through Israel. 
God brought the Messiah the first time through the Jewish people, and he is going to bring the Messiah back through the Jewish people. Now, I'm going to cover the highlights of the book of Esther this morning. I want to encourage you to go home and fill in the details. I listened to it last night when I went to bed, and I fell asleep, I think, somewhere in chapter 7, but it will only take you about 30 minutes or so to get your way through it. Now, the book opens with a royal banquet, and it's quite a party. Follow along with me. I hope you brought a Bible. You need to bring a Bible to church with you. That's what I told the last service. I saw several people out there without a Bible, looking at their neighbor's Bible. Look, you don't eat off of your neighbor's plate. Neither do you need to look off of your neighbor's Bible. You need to have your own copy. And I promise you'll get more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the Word of God in your lap. And if you don't have one, come to meet the pastor and you will receive one. All right, notice how the book opens. Now, it took place in the days of Harasserus. Now, some of your Bibles say in the day of Xerxes because they are following the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and that was his more popular name. But the Hebrew Bible says the days of Harasserus. Now, it took place in the days of Harasserus, the Harasserus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in the citadel of Su- in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his province, provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And after this great party for all of the leadership in all the provinces, we learn in verse 5, when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now notice verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kind, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. Drop down to verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, he was loaded, brogy paraphrase, having become drunk, we are told, he commanded Mahuman, Bitsa, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zathar, and Carcass. Those are some names you might name your kids after, huh? <laughs> the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Harasuras to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And the king became very angry as wrath burned within him. What a revolting development for this king. Of course, his only, king, his only concern is what will happen. What will happen if word gets out among his empire that his own queen would not come at his edict. So he gathers some of his advisors together, and we read of their counsel here in verse 17. Notice, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Harasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. So he's warned by his leaders that if this goes unchecked, he'll have a revolt on his hands, that the other ladies in the kingdom might follow her example. Of course, these same men have very little concern for the way that 
this king by brutal example, by gross mistreatment of Vasti. They don't care about that. They're only concerned about themselves. So three years go by, and King Herasterus gets lonely. Now, secular history records for us that he's actually been away for three years. He's fighting the Greeks, and it's a humiliating defeat. History records he took a million men with him, and he came back with 5,000. And so he sought solace, as many do, in his sin. So he decides to satisfy his central appetites by searching for a new queen and filling up his harem with new women. And so the king has a beauty contest to pick a new queen. And so look now, if you will, at chapter 2 and verse 3. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. The matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. And so in the process of gathering all these women under the king's edict, Esther is selected by the king's attendants as a consideration. And so now we're introduced to both Mordecai and Esther here in verse 5. Notice, if you will. Now, there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. Remember, the kingdom was once united at one point. God sent prophets to preach to the northern kingdom. He sent prophets to preach to the southern kingdom. If you don't repent and obey, I'm going to discipline you. The northern kingdom was carried off. Then some years later, the southern kingdom by King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. were carried off as well. And so Mordecai's great-grandfather was one of the Jews who was carried off in that deportation. When the 70-year captivity was over, for whatever reason, his father did not go back. And Mordecai ends up living in Persia because in the providence of God, God is going to use him to preserve the Jewish people. And that will become clear. Uh, Notice, if you will, verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, their first cousins, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now that tells me that Esther, her parents died young. We don't know for what reason, but his first cousin, Mordecai ends up, the text says, raising her as her own daughter. And chronology-wise, that would be more common in biblical times than in our times, because people, one, tended to see children as a blessing, and they had more children than the average evangelical in people do today. I was kind of blown away when I was introduced to my wife's family, only to discover that her grandmother was pregnant with her seventh child at the same time when Audrey's mother was pregnant with her first. And so here's Mordecai. He's Esther's first cousin, but he's old enough to be her daddy, and he raises her as such. And if you're familiar with the book of Esther, you know that Esther, of course, won the beauty contest. Look at verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins. 
so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vasti. So now the plot thickens. We're introduced to the sinister minister by the name of Haman who hatches the plot to exterminate the Jews. And today, whenever Haman's name is read at the Feast of Purim, the Jewish people across the world will read the book of Esther. And when his name is read, they stomp like this as an expression of their disdain because God said in Exodus 17 and in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25 that the Jewish people were to blot out the memory of Amalek from whom Haman, of course, descends. Now look, if you will, at chapter 3 in verse 1. After these events, King Harasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Mordecai refuses to bow down and to show him respect. Now, please understand, for a Hebrew person to bow down to an official was not a violation of the second commandment any more than it is for a Christian today to show respect for someone who is in office. Abraham bowed down to the sons of Heth in negotiating Sarah's grave, and he was certainly not an idolater. Joseph's brothers bowed down to him not knowing who he was, but as an Egyptian official. David bowed down to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and Jacob and his family bowed down before Esau. But Mordecai refuses to bow down before Haman. Was it because he was filled with pride? Is that what kept him from bowing down and showing him respect? I mean, if Mordecai could not respect the man, could he not at least respect the office? I think the answer is found in the fact that Haman is an Amalekite, and the Amalekites were the bitter enemies of the Jews. Haman had descended from King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And if you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, God said that Saul was to destroy all of the Amalekites. God had waited for some 400 years. That's why they were in bondage for 400 years. God was giving the people living in the land of Israel 400 years to repent. But they had become such a vile, wicked, evil people, killing and frying on the fire even their own babies. God in His providence, knowing the generational unbelief of the Amalekites, said that they were to be destroyed. And so in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 16, God declared war on them. Listen to these words. The Lord has sworn, the Lord will give, will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. God in his omniscience was able to see the generational unbelief. And so he knew that these were a people who would seek to utterly destroy the people of Israel. And so it's the love of God for people that wants to protect the Jewish people. You see, the destruction of the Jewish people would mean an end to the Messianic line, and it's through the Hebrew people that God promises to bring the Savior of the world. And so here's Mordecai, and he's thinking, how can I do homage 
to an enemy of the Lord. And so here's Mordecai, and he is on the Lord's side. He doesn't really care what people think. He is concerned with what God thinks. Now, old Haman, he's ticked off. Look at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of Harassarus. So Haman, he devises a plan, and he takes the plan to the king. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Harassarus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay out of his own pocket 10,000 talents of silver, that's a huge sum of money, into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Haman has a hatred like the devil does for the Jewish people. He knew how to push the king's buttons. He knew how to appeal to the conceit of this king, not to mention his greed. And notice the king's response. It's found in verses 10 through 12. And the king, in essence, says, keep your money, but carry out your plan. Look at now at verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Now remember, this is throughout the whole empire. Verse 14 informs us. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. Now, Satan has made many attempts throughout human history to destroy the Jewish people. There's no other people in the history of humanity who have been opposed and hated like the Jewish people. No people. Why? Because behind their hatred is an inspired demonic uh, force that is at work. And so God preserves these people year after year after year, and God continues decades, century after century, millennia after millennia, to preserve the nation of Israel. And the Bible reveals there's coming a day in the future, according to the book of Romans and the book of Revelation, according to Jeremiah 31, according to Ezekiel 36, where the nation as a whole will become recipients of the new covenant. You and I, who are born again, are recipients today, but there's coming a time when in whole the Jewish people will repent. And whether it's a Pharaoh, whether it's a Haman, whether it's a Herod or a Hitler, the Jewish people cannot and never will be annihilated. Listen to the promise that God made right after he gave the promise of a new covenant. He says, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I wish John Calvin had listened to this verse. I wish every replacement theologian of our day had heard the next verse. If this fixed order of the sun, the moon, and the stars departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. 
So Mordecai, who's kind of an unofficial White House correspondent, hears of Haman's wicked plot, and we learn here now in chapter 4 and verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He's going to God for help. After all, he is, after he has done all this, Esther, of course, gets wind. And he wants her to understand what her role is going to be in God's plan. She hears of Mordecai putting on sackcloth and ash and mourning there and wailing there in the city. She wants to know what's going on through her uncle. And so as you read the text in verse 5, she summons Hattak, one of the king's unit. Go to Mordecai, find out what's wrong. Now, I doubt for a moment that Hattak understood the incredible role that he was going to play in the preservation of the Jews. And that's often the way it is. The work of God, for the most part, are done through obscure people. He says, not many wise, not many noble, not many rich. He doesn't say not any wise, not any noble, not any rich. But most of God's work in this world is done through simple, ordinary people wherever you go in the world. And you see that pattern all the way through Scripture, obscure people, people who don't even know their name. I mean, what was the name of the boy who gave Jesus his loaves and his fish? What were the names of the men who rescued the Apostle Paul and saved his life as they lowered him down in a basket over the wall there in the city of Damascus? What was the name of the little girl that told Naaman to go see Elisha in order to be healed? We don't know, but God accomplished his purposes through these obscure people. Like a great door that moves on small hinges, most of God's work in this world is done not through famous, not through well-known people, but just ordinary, everyday people like you and me. And so Hattak brings Esther a copy of the king's edict that Haman had written. Watch how this unfolds beginning here in chapter 4 in verse 7. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with her for her people. So Mordecai is asking Esther to reveal her true identity and to go into the royal throne room to plead with him, the king, for her people. Notice how she responds here in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to the king for these 30 days. Now, please know, we will see it in a moment. This is not an excuse, but it is a plea to Uncle Mordecai for guidance. Yes, she's afraid. And most of the time, both fear and courage live in the same heart. They go hand in hand. But she's asking for a sense of reassurance. She's asking for a sense of direction. And in a moment, we're going to see a tremendous step of courage that this woman takes. Now, I want us to examine three component parts of moral courage that I believe the Spirit of God wants to build into your life and into my life so that we can stand firm in these last days. 
Morally weak societies do not produce strong leaders. And we live in a morally weak society. And if it continues long enough, both history and the Bible documents that the society will crumble. When when President Obama, Barack Obama, when the president ran, he said that marriage was between a man and a woman, period. In the course of the next four years, on a Sunday morning, many of you watched the interview. It was burned into my skull. I watched it, of course, after the fact I was here where I needed to be. But, of course, the vice president-elect, as he's being called, was being interviewed on a Sunday morning talk show, and he was asked, you can watch it online, what is your view of marriage? And Joseph Biden said, I believe gay marriage ought to be legal. I think that if two people love each other, whether they're male or female, the same gender, it ought to be legal. And that put President Obama into a corner. And within one week, he came out and affirmed the same truth. There was a time when Joseph Biden believed in the Hyde Amendment, that the federal government should not use your tax dollars to kill little babies. He says in the first hundred days, he said in the first day of office, he will rescind the Hyde Amendment by presidential executive order. We live in a morally decadent society. And please understand, I am not saying that the Republicans by nature are all virtuous people. But when you read the platform of one party and the platform of the other, it's two worldviews that are colliding. And whether it's by conviction or whether they're just being salted or whether they just want to be morally correct in order to get the evangelical vote and other people who have a certain basis of morals, we have here two different visions that are colliding. It has very little to do with Republican and Democrat. It has everything to do with two worldviews that are colliding. And let me just say to you, one of the scariest things is that we are now raising a generation of young people who are morally degenerate. And let me say to anyone listening, if you're homosexual, if you're a lesbian, if you're an adulterer, and if you're a fornicator, and by the way, it's heterosexual immorality that Romans 1 teaches will open and pave the way for, heterosexual, for homosexual perversion. But if you're a drunk, a homosexual, a drug addict, an adulterer, or fornicator, I don't care what you are, God can forgive you. But you must say what God says about your sin and come to faith in Christ, and he will make you a brand new person on the inside. Listen, we need people who have some moral strength and fabric. Now, that's all by way of introduction. Some of you are saying, when's he going to get to the outline? We're coming to it now, all right? So there are three components of moral courage that I want us to examine. First, the intellectual component to moral courage, the intellectual component. I want you to note first that having moral courage, being able to stand firmly has an intellectual component to it, that Moral courage is not based on ignorance, it's based on intelligence. It's not a matter of an individual rushing into a building that's on fire only to find out that no one's in the building. 
No, it's based on intelligence, and the intelligence needs to be based on the revelation of Scripture. God doesn't build moral courage in a vacuum. He builds it with truth. And Esther is a person who had significant input by her uncle who taught her the Scriptures. Turn back for a moment to chapter 2 and verse 20. Chapter 2 and verse 20. I want you to see something. We're told in chapter 2 and verse 20, Esther had not yet made known her kindred, that she's Jewish, or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Repeatedly in this book, we are told that Mordecai instructs Esther. He raised her, the text says, his own daughter. And verse 20 tells us that she did exactly what Mordecai said. Why is that? Now, understand that Mordecai's instruction is informed by the Jewish culture, and the Jewish culture is informed by the Bible. And on every Sabbath, for nearly 4,000 years, there's a text of Scripture that is read by every Jew across the world. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And we affirm that as Christians. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And by the way, what follows, Jesus said, is the greatest of all the commandments. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, here's the intelligence, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Now understand, that's the parent's responsibility that Moses gives, that you're to raise your children up under the word of God. Esther 2.20, it is a very simple statement, but it's not a simplistic statement. It's simple, but it's not superficial. It is based on the Shema. It is based on the revelation of God. So here's Mordecai. He recognizes this is my own flesh and blood. God has entrusted this responsibility to me. And so he serves her like he were her daddy. And by the way, dads and moms, this is our responsibility. We are to train up our children. Now, with that statement, and the statements like it that are repeatedly used throughout this book, there are two truths that I learned. First, I learned something about the quality of Esther's training, the quality of Esther's training. You see, Esther was both a disadvantaged person and an advantaged person. She was handicapped by the very fact that she was an orphan. Her parents had died, and so Mordecai, of course, is raising her. That potentially was a great disadvantage, especially in that day. But not only had she been orphaned, she was a member of a despised, hated minority. Jews were hated in that day as they are hated in our day, as they've been hated in every generation. Why were they hated in Esther's day? Because they represented the Lord God. They stood out as different in the midst of a pagan, immoral, idolatrous society. And so I'm reminded from Esther's life, a very, very important principle, that while you cannot determine what you have received, you can determine what you've done with what you've been received. In other words, you can respond to whatever circumstances you may find yourself in. 
This is very, very important. There are some things that you have absolutely no control over in this life. And the culture would tell you that you are a victim, that you are crippled for the rest of your life. The fact that you were raised in a pagan home, you had no control over that. The fact that maybe your parents divorced each other when you were just a small child, you had no control over that. The fact that your mother was a drunk, the fact that your father may have molested you, these are things you cannot change. Yet everything in our culture would paint a victimized kind of mentality that you are wounded for life. But the Christian is to have a different perspective. The Christian recognizes if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away and everything has become new. We are recipients of the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of where God can take a heart of stone and he can turn it into a heart of flesh. The spirit of God is placed within us. And so Paul can say to the church at Philippi, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you've been saved, God Almighty is at work within you. And God loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you the way he found you when he saved you. And so Paul can say this in the fourth chapter, I can do all things, not some things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we have no excuse to wallow in our hardships. I met someone recently who came to our church, they are a new Christian, and when I learned of their background, I thought, my... What a home this individual was raised in. But he said to me, Pastor, I want to know how I can be different, how I can break the cycle in my family now that I am a new Christian. That was so refreshing to me. This was not some victim-oriented brother in Christ. Here's a guy who had an entirely different perspective in life. And again, while you cannot determine what you have received, you can determine how you respond. You may not be able to change your past, but you can respond differently based on the revelation of Scripture. And that determination is based on what the Word of God says, and that's what we need to be asking. What does the Scripture say? What are the promises of God? How does God want me to think about myself? How does God want me to think about the future? And how can I take these principles and apply them to life? And so here's Esther. And on the one hand, she's a disadvantaged person. On the other hand, she's a greatly advantaged person. She has the distinct advantage of being discipled by Uncle Mordecai. And disciple is one of the most exciting processes that you can get engaged in. It's the process of building into another person's life. And so here's Mordecai. He thinks, Esther, she's my own flesh and blood. She was not his daughter, but he took responsibility for her. And if he could do that for his first cousin, what should we be doing for our own children? I find two extremes today in the way a lot of people think about the whole process of discipleship. On the one hand, you've got these people who are running to this Bible study and that Bible study and this discipleship group and that discipleship group, all in the name of the Great Commission. But in the process, they have failed to build the precious little ones that God has entrusted to them, the people in their own home. And listen, there's not a born-again father or mother who cannot do what Mordecai did for Esther. God never commands you to do something, and then he doesn't give you the power or the ability to pull it off. And over the years, I've seen Christian pastors, I've seen Christian Sunday school teachers, adult Bible fellowship leaders, who are out there trying to have an impact on the world, and all the while their own children are going to pots. 
That's why when God looks for leadership in the church, 1 Timothy 3, he says one of the first things you look for is not how famous the person is, not how much money they have, not how many degrees they have after their name, but what is their family like? Because if a man can't make it work in his family, he is disqualified for leadership in the church. If you can't make it work in your home, don't bring it into the church. And so your credibility to disciple those on the outside begins with how you handle those who are on the inside. On the other hand, there are parents who are constantly running to the church, people who visit here, and they ask, well, what do you have for my children? What do you have for my kids? That's the wrong question. That's not what they should be asking if they were wise and perceptive. They should be asking, does this church open the Bible up to me, to me as a dad, to me as a mom, so that I in turn can teach my children? You see, the role of the church is to disciple the parents so the parents can go home and teach the children. I am a pastor this morning, and I am discipling you. How am I discipling you? I am opening up the Word of God. And as you grow and apply what you know, you mature, your spiritual gifts begin to manifest one another, and together we are discipling each other. We are growing to the maturity that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Look, I did not have the advantage of growing up in a home where the Bible was open to me, and I was being taught on a daily basis from the Scripture. But that doesn't matter. You can become a part of a local church. And by the way, that's why membership is important in the New Testament. That's why the local church is important to God. And one function of the local church is for me as a pastor to instruct you so you in turn can go home and teach your children. And in that respect, COVID's been a good thing. Because for some of us, we've become so dependent on Awana and Sunday school and kids' choirs and all these incredible children's ministries that God has blessed us with. And some of us are realizing that we've let the church do what we need to be doing as dads and moms. Now, here's Mordecai. He disciples Queen Esther like she was his own daughter. And with that said, let me ask you a question. Who was greater, D.L. Moody or Edward Kimball, who led him to Christ and discipled him as a new Christian? Who was greater, John and Charles Wesley, or Sarah Wesley, who opened up the Scriptures to those young men on a daily basis? Listen, I learned from this passage something about the quality of Esther's training. Secondly, I learned something about the quality of Esther's commitment, the quality of her commitment. Look now at chapter 2, and again in verse 20. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Esther was a woman who was personally influenced and driven by the truth. She responded to what she knew. She did, the text says, what Mordecai taught her. The truth became her own. This was not secondhand. You see, the danger to being a disadvantaged person is the danger of being cynical of living in despair, of living with a sense of hopelessness. But the danger of being an advantaged person where you grow up in a Christian home is you become immunized to the truth. A famous book written by Chad Walsh was entitled Christians of the 21st Century. He wrote it in the 20th century. But he wrote these words, Millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quivers. Divorce from the will, divorce from the intellect, 
in demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a man travels far enough away from Christianity, he is liable to see it in perspective and decide that it's true. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a man with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. And it is my observation that this can often happen in Christian homes where the Bible is taught and that parents may know enough to be saved, but they're not gripped by what they know. They just jump through the hoops because they know this is what they're supposed to do as a parent. And what happens when you're that kind of a parent is you typically raise apathetic children. They often remain babes in Christ, and so these parents who spend more time in front of the television than they do taking the Scriptures and pouring over it and making it their own are unable to impact the next generation. Or sometimes they, they may have a lot of knowledge, and they learned, have learned a lot, but they're not high in their obedience. And when you're that kind of a dad or mom, you will typically raise either children who will apostatize from the faith, or at best they will be Christians, but they will be lukewarm and sour, and they will lose the next generation. And so we need to ask ourselves, is my heart so radically changed by Jesus Christ that I am not giving my children a mild case of Christianity so as to inoculate them from the real disease? Listen, unfortunately, it often takes a crisis sent from heaven to get the attention of a father or a mother. And in the American church, we suffer either from pulpits that don't even open up the Bible, all these pastors who want to be cool, they have become much like the world, they, they talk about all these R-rated movies they've seen, they become the sermon illustrations, their mind is polluted with trash, they've got the windows darkened out, they've got all this smoke and this drama and all these lights going on. We're either in that extreme or we have some churches where people's heads are filled with knowledge but they are not gripped with the truth that they are hearing. Why? Because the pastor himself is not gripped by it. And so they have kind of a whole home Christian experience. And so children see these parents who are more excited about their football team than they are getting up on Sunday morning to worship the living God. Parents who are more in tune with their favorite TV show than they are with reaching their lost friends for Christ. And if your children does not, do not see a vital relationship and if they do not see answered prayer in your home, God moving in your heart, your concern and your compassion for those who have never met Jesus Christ, then you will raise a generation of either lost or apathetic people. Now, that's the intellectual component to moral courage, but there's an emotional component to moral courage. Roman numeral two in your outline. You see, one of the characteristics of a culture that is morally rotting is apathy. It's self-centered. And people who are self-centered, they are only interested in their personal peace and prosperity. Apathetic people, so-called Christians, who are not really excited by the truth. They're not moved by it. They take the information in week after week, and they yawn when it's all over. They look at their watches. They wonder, when is this thing going to get over? He's been preaching for an hour, but they can sit there and they can watch their ball game for two and a half hours. What's important to you this morning? 
You see, your knowledge is to impact you and to stir your heart even emotionally. Jesus said this in John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. You see, when you obey what you know, you grow. The God of the universe who created a hundred billion galaxies begins to disclose himself to you. He makes himself known to you. And that's motivating, that's pulsating, that's life-changing, that the living God is working in your heart. Is that happening to you today? Or are you simply apathetic? Well, the answer of how to get excited over God is revealed here in chapter 4. And there are two key truths I don't want you to miss. First, Esther knew the value of life. Esther knew the value of life. Esther had already said in chapter 4 and verse 11, well, if I go into the king, he might have me killed. And so Mordecai responds to her plea in verse 13, and don't miss this. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you are in the king's palace. Uh, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. What's he doing? Mordecai is trying to put spiritual steel into Esther's spine. Mordecai knows that she is frightened. He knows that she is in a spiritual battle. Satan could easily bring into her mind what happened to Queen Vasti, and it might have paralyzed her. He knows that what she is going to do is a far worse violation of protocol than what even Queen Vasti did. She is going to go into the presence of the king unannounced, unwelcomed, uninvited. And of course, that would typically mean death. So I want you to notice how Mordecai appeals to the truth to stir her on three levels. First, we read here in verse 13, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Now, when you come to chapter 8, it's very clear that the edict that Haman writes affects every single Jew wherever you live in the Persian Empire. Whether you live in Susa, the capital, or back in Jerusalem, clearly Esther 8.2 indicates that all 127 provinces are going to be impacted from India all the way to Ethiopia. So first, Mordecai reminds Esther that being a resident of the palace does not guarantee that she is going to be delivered from death. Haman is going to find out you're a Jew. That's what he's saying in essence. And when he finds out you are a Jew, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, you must be executed. Again, verse 14, Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. So secondly, Mordecai wants Esther to know that the Jewish race is going to survive. How does he know that? Because God made an unconditional unilateral covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. You cannot destroy the Jewish people. The church has not replaced Israel. God is going to culminate history through Israel. You cannot wipe them out because God's going to bring the Messiah through Israel. And Mordecai knows that. He knows that his people cannot be annihilated. And in essence, he's saying, look, God promised to bring the Messiah through us, the Hebrew people. And if God doesn't use you, Esther, then he's going to use someone else. And so then he adds here in verse 14, and who knows? 
whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. That's his third reason that he gives her for responding. Look, Esther, God is sovereign. God is in control. And if you're not willing to get involved and to pay the price, God will get the job done. He just won't use you. He'll use someone else. Have you ever considered that you are living at this time in human history for such a time as this? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that of, in all of the centuries since Adam, that you are in the 21st century, what the scripture clearly defines as the latter days before the Messiah comes? Because he said in the latter days, he would gather Israel from the four corners of the earth. Have you ever considered that you are in that time frame? Moms and dads, have you considered that you may be raising the next generation, if not the last generation of Esther's and Mordecai's for such a time as this? Marines and those of you who are in the Navy, has it ever occurred to you that God has put you in that platoon for such a time as this? Some of you older adults, has it ever occurred to you that a scripture commands you to do that you are to build into the next generation for such a time as this? Or maybe God has just prepared us all to be a part of the final generation for such a time as this. I think this is an exciting day to be alive because the darker the world gets, the brighter we can shine. People say, well, pastor, the church in America is failing. According to who? May I remind you that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail about it, against it. God is building his church. It is right on schedule. God is not shaken by the events of these days. The great danger is that you will miss out. You will miss the opportunity for God to use you in this time. And so the key, brothers and sisters, to finding out where God is working is to look around, see where he's moving, and then join him in that. Have an impact with the people of God who care about the things that God cares about. What will happen at the end of your life? How will you measure whether it was really well spent? Do you measure it by how long you live or how well you lived? You see, Scripture does not measure the value of its life by its duration, but by its donation, by the impact. You say, I've blown it, and I'm already 70. Then make a difference until the day God calls you home. So Esther, by her obedience, demonstrated she knew the value of life. Secondly, Esther knew the value of death. Not only did she know the value of life, she knew the value of death. And I want you to see there's a cause-effect relationship. You see, until you understand what the purpose of life is all about, then death will never make sense to you. I want you to notice how Esther understood the relationship between the two here in chapter 4 and verse 15. We read that Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. She knew she could not carry out this plan in her own strength. She needed God's empowerment. She knew she needed God's victory. And so together with the people of God, they seek the Lord in fasting and by application prayer. Now notice verse 16. And thus, I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Even though it's against Persian law, I'm going to do it even if it costs me my life. You learn a whole lot about a person 
by what they're willing to die for, what they are willing to give their life for. And the early church knew when they were opposed by the authorities of the day that they had to follow the living God no matter what. They were told by the authorities, you're not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And they replied in Acts 4 and verse, uh, Acts chapter 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. And then in verse 20, they said, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen or heard. If you remember, in the fifth chapter, it records how they were dragged into court. And the officials said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in, his name, in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. These early believers were willing, if necessary, to pay the ultimate price. You see, one of the great misconceptions of this culture is that we are in the land of the living, headed to the land of the dying. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are in the land of the dying, headed to the land of living. Man will live forever and ever and ever, either in eternity with God in heaven or in eternity in hell. And the truth gripped the early church, and this truth gripped Queen Esther. One prominent businessman said at the end of his life, I spent my whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find that my ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. Let me ask you, what are the things that grip you? What are the things you live for? What do you think of when you wake up in the morning? What drives you during the week? Go home and make a list of those things and put them into the mirror of Scripture and see if your passions match the passions of Almighty God. Have you ever come to appreciate the value of life and death from the point of view that God presents in Scripture? Now, there's a third component to moral courage that I want you to see. Yes, there's an intellectual opponent. Yes, there's an emotional component. But then there's the volitional component to moral courage, the volitional component. Not only do I need to know the will of God as found in Scripture and to feel the will of God that is not just some head trip but something that grips my heart, but I need to do the will of God. And Esther was willing to do. She was willing at the risk of her own life to pay the ultimate cost. Notice two things. First, Esther did what she knew to be right. She did what she knew to be right. We learn that beginning here in chapter 5 in verse 1. Follow along through this section of Scripture. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came there and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared, and they drank their wine at the banquet. The king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. 
Now, Haman thinks, of course, that he's going to be honored. So we read here in verse 9, Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. So his wife and his friends give Haman advice. Look at verse 14. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, 50 cubits high, made in the morning. Ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Now, of course, in chapter 6, you discover that the king is having a case of divine insomnia. God won't let him sleep. And so, in order to fall asleep, he orders one of his servants to come and to read to him the chronicles of his kingdom. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Haraserus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So here's the records. They're being read. Haraserus hears in the transcripts of how Mordecai spared his life. And it grabs his attention, and he immediately wants to know how he was honored and rewarded. And they find out nothing's been done. So the next day, the king asks Haman, this Jewish man, this Jewish leader, who's over all of the provinces, kind of a prime minister under the king of sorts, to honor someone. What would you do, Haman? What would you do if you wanted to honor someone? And so Haman, of course, thinks, the text says, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And so he says, well, king, this is what I would do. I'd put the royal robe on that person's back. I'd put the royal crown on that person's head. I'd let him ride the king's horse through the streets and proclaim through one of his attendants, this is what the king does for those who honor him. And so the king says to Haman, fantastic idea. Now go do that for Mordecai. Well, of course, that day later at the banquet, Esther asked the king for her request. Look at chapter 7 and verse 2. And the king said to Esther, On the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Haraserus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. And so Haman begs Esther for his life. Look at verse 9. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him, hang Haman on it. 
And so Haman is hung on the very gallows that he made for Mordecai. And that's the way it always is because sooner or later, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. Look, our nation is laughing at God. We think everything is fine. We started raising our fists in his face, and we said, God didn't create the world, evolution did. And God says, when a nation does that, I'll give them over. When they deny his eternal attributes, his divine nature, I'll give them over to sensuality. We continued to raise our fists, and so God gave them over, the scripture says, to homosexuality. We continued to raise our fists, and God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And that's where we are today. We are calling evil good and good evil. The very things that God hates, that he finds to be an abomination, we are sanctioning as something that should be protected and something that should be lauded. And as long as my bank account is full, as long as my job is secure, as long as I can pay the bills, as long as I have a good uh, economy in which to live, I'm going to live in my adultery. I don't care what God says. I'm going to live and drink the world's drink. I don't care what the world says. I'm going to endorse abortion. I don't care what the world says. I'm going to affirm the LGBTQIA lifestyle. I don't care what God Almighty says. And my friend, we are building our own gallows to hang ourselves on it. Go home and read chapters 8 to 10. It's the record of history, and it's absolutely fascinating. Now, do not miss after what Esther did, she knew what she knew to be right. Esther then gave God all the glory. She gave God all the glory. Fast forward, chapter 9, verse uh, 28. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. God sovereignly protected them, and Mordecai and Esther wanted to give God all the credit, and he never wanted the Jew, they never wanted the Jews to forget what God did, and so they institute the Feast of Purim. It's not like Passover or Tabernacles or Pentecost. It's not prescribed in the law of Moses. It's much like the Feast of Lights or what we call Hanukkah. Unfortunately, today for many Jewish people, the Feast of Purim is just like our Mardi Gras, because the nation is largely in unbelief. But here's this fascinating little book that God includes in the canon of Scripture. It's the only book in all of the Bible where the name of God is never once mentioned, but you cannot read it without continually being conscious of God's presence, and you see his sovereign, omnipotent, providential fingerprints everywhere you move. Let me suggest three applications as we close our time off this morning. Three applications from this book. Number one, a believer who is standing firm will be a witness to the lost. You want to ask yourself today, do you have moral courage? Well, a believer who is standing firm and in their moral courage will be a witness to the lost. Now, please understand, it's our moral distinctiveness that allows us to be a witness to an unbelieving world. If you continue reading, you will find that the Gentiles who are living in the Persian Empire recognize the greatness of Israel's God. Listen to these words in Ezra chapter 8 and verse 17. We are told in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. 
Now understand, this is not some feigned conversion. These are not Gentiles masquerading as Jews. These are Gentiles because Israel at this point are functioning the way they need to function, a light to the Gentiles who are becoming Jews. Not in the ethnic sense. You cannot become a Jew ethnically if you are a Gentile. But in a religious sense, and Judaism is described on two levels. There's those who are descendants of Abraham, and that's determined in Scripture by the father, not by the mother. Now today in the oral law that the Jews practice, they say Jewishness is determined by the mother, not in Holy Scripture. That's why oral law is not authoritative. It might be helpful, but it's not authoritative. It is the Scripture alone, sola scriptura, the books of the Old Testament that teach that Jewishness is determined by the dad. And so understand, if you are a Jew, you can no more become Chinese than a Chinese person could become a Jew. But if you are a Gentile, you can embrace the God of Israel, and that's what we see happening here. Just like Rahab, she could see God's hand in delivering Israel out of the land of Egypt, and she, in turn, turned to the living God. And here are these people who see the prayer and the fasting of the Jewish people who moves the hand of God all many, and many of them are converted because of it. And that's what we need today. We need people who are distinctively different, unlike the modern church growth movement that tells us that if we become like the world, the world will like us and they'll embrace us and you'll get the trash and these mega churches that mean absolutely nothing in our day and do nothing for God and change no one for the Lord. But listen, God has always had his remnant. He's always had his people. And if you are indeed a person of moral courage, you will be distinctively different. You will be a witness to the lost world. Secondly, a believer who is standing firm will take action. They will take action. That's the nature of moral courage. It learns what God says, and then it does something with it. And so God does not hand the Hebrew people victory. They have to do something with this deliverance. And so we read in chapter 9 and verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who are in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now that's an important principle. It's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do, not just to hear, but to do according to all that is written in it. And then God, of course, gives us the prid quo. quo. He says, and then, then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. It does not mean by success that you may be successful from the world's point of view, but you will have success from the way God looks and evaluates your life. It doesn't mean that you just sit on your hands. No, you take action. Noah didn't sit in his driveway for 120 years. He got out there and he built that boat. Joseph didn't sit on his hands during those seven years of plenty. He prepared for the seven years of famine. And we don't need to sit on our hands. Some evangelicals said, we don't need to go out and vote. You can just stay home. You don't like Trump. Stay home. Stay home. It only took 10% of the evangelical vote to slide for us to lose the election if indeed we have lost it. 
because of men who are unwilling to be disliked. Look, I've had people already who told me they are leaving the church because I've taken a stance. I have not taken a chance, a stance on Democratic versus Republican issues. I'm taking a stance on moral issues that have entered into the Christian church. And on that, every born-again, blood-bought believer should take a stance. Third and finally, a believer who is standing firm will be gripped by the truth. Friends, God included this book because he knew that the people at the end of the age would desperately need it. And we need believers today who know the will of God, believers who feel passionately about the will of God, but we need believers who will do the will of God. You see, you can talk about it all you want, but talk is cheap. We need to be gripped by the truth. You can talk about becoming a Christian and you can die tonight and go to hell. You can talk about sharing your faith with your relatives and your friends and then never do it. You can talk about getting involved and caring for people through adult Bible fellowships and then never attend. You can talk about joining this church and never do it. You can talk about being baptized and never obey. You can talk about tithing and never carry through. You can talk, 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 but talk is cheap. And so we need people who not only know the truth, but people who are gripped by the truth. And the curse of an apathetic, narcissistic, existential, self-centered society are people who are hell-bent on their own needs and could really not care deeply about the things that God cares about. Mordecai wasn't taken back by the fact that he could have been killed. He was willing to obey no matter what, even as Esther was. So do you have a grip on the truth? And does the truth have a grip on you? That's a very important question to ask this morning. I'm not asking you about your knowledge level. I'm asking you about your obedience quotient. And so what will your life mean when you come to the end of your life? You come to those final days and you look back over your life, however much time God has given you, what will it take for you to be able to say, I have lived a life of significance? We are living in days where people need to know the will of God, they need to feel the will of God, and they need to practice God's will. And Esther was willing to put her, her life in the place of death to save the Jewish people. And praise God, Jesus Christ, put himself in the place of death. He was pierced through for our iniquity so that you could become a forgiven person, a changed person with life eternal in your heart forever and ever. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And you know the culture that we are living in. And we thank you that you are not shaken by the events of these days, that you are sovereignly ruling in the heavens above that whatever happens to this nation should not change what our people are to do as believers in the living God. Father, we pray today for someone within the sound of my voice who have never met Christ, who do not have assurance that if this were their last day on earth, that their home is in heaven. Help them to admit that they are bankrupt, that they can do nothing to merit or earn salvation. Help them to put their faith where you put their sin on the Lord Jesus. Help them to call upon him that they might be forgiven and changed. Thank you that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help someone in the recesses of their heart today. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me.
And then help that someone, Father, to openly, publicly confess him before men. But for those of us who've crossed that line, Father, help us to do some personal inventory today to ask ourselves if we are people who stand firm with moral courage, and if not, may we make the changes that we might reflect the Lord Jesus, that men and women and boys and girls might see our good works to bring glory to you, our Father who's in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand wherever you may be this morning? You're in the adjacent auditorium. You're in Graniteville. You're in Grays. You're live streaming somewhere in the United States or the world. And you have a public decision to make. If you're in another state, another foreign country, someone wrote me this week, I, I, I'm a new Christian. I need a church home in my state. We'll help you find one. But I can't help you if I don't know. So you fill out that card online. But if you're local, you need a church home. As I told the people on Thursday night, we have two requirements. The only two you find in Scripture. Saved and baptized after you've been saved. Have you been saved and baptized? Those are the only two requirements in the New Testament. If you have, then I'm going to invite you to leave your seat and come to this front row. You're coming, we'll say, I want to be a part of this church. Maybe you haven't been baptized. We'll be happy to help you with that. So Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision to make, to confess Jesus, to obey him in baptism, to join this church, I invite you to leave. You might be in Graniteville and Grays. There's someone down there in the front of that auditorium as last week, and people came, and I want to invite you to leave your seats in those places and come and join.